This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the first chapter of the series, Murder Memories. In these episodes, I'll be telling you about a very strange and rare phenomenon, recovered memories of murder. Witnessing or committing a murder would be something you'd think would be remembered until your dying day. But could it be possible that a person would forget about a murder? Could a traumatic event like witnessing a violent crime cause a person to repress the memory so completely that they, in essence, forget they ever saw such a horrific event? That is the question that needed to be answered in the story I'm about to tell you. A woman came to believe that when she was very young, she witnessed the murder of another young girl and then forgot about it for decades until the memory resurfaced. She then reported the crime to the police, who were tasked with investigating a 20-year-old cold case and then deciding whether the evidence could prove she was telling the truth. This is a fascinating case that stayed in my memory for decades, and now I can share it with you. This is Chapter 1 of Murder Memories, The Recovered Memory of Eileen Franklin. Susan Nason was eight years old and in the third grade at Foster City Elementary School in the fall of 1969. She was a tiny girl with red hair and freckles who was sweet and very friendly, if somewhat quiet. This could be because some of the kids made fun of her, the type of teasing that, unfortunately, was often inflicted on red-headed children. But for the most part, Susan was a happy child. She was especially happy on September 22nd because that weekend, she would turn nine years old. On that Saturday, she would be joined by friends at a local roller rink to celebrate her birthday, and she was most excited that her best friend, Eileen Franklin, would be attending. She and Eileen were a bit like kindred spirits. Both girls were from middle-class families and lived just around the corner from each other. Both also possessed red hair and freckles. Having just a handful of friends, they weren't the most popular girls in the class, but in each other, they had found acceptance and had become fast friends just three weeks into the school year. Susan's head was probably filled with thoughts of birthday cake and gifts that were soon to come when she began gathering her things as the school bell rang to end the day. Even so, she noticed that another girl in her class named Celia Oakley had left her tennis shoes behind. In those days, little girls mostly wore dresses and black or brown Mary Jane-type shoes to school. On the days when kids at Foster City Elementary had physical education, the girls would bring their tennis shoes or gym shoes to class to change into. Susan, being a thoughtful girl, saw the bag with the shoes left under Celia's coat hook and asked her teacher, Mrs. Larkin, if she could take them and drop them off to Celia at her house. Mrs. Larkin said she could, but to make sure she went home first to tell her mother. Susan promised to do so and skipped off home. When she arrived home a little after 3 p.m., her mother was sitting behind the sewing machine making a dress for Susan to wear to her party on Saturday. Susan popped in quickly to tell her mother about the shoes. She said that Celia lived in their neighborhood and she would run the shoes over and be right back. Margaret Nason agreed and Susan left with the brown bag containing the shoes. Several people saw the little girl carrying the bag and walking in the direction of Celia's house just after 3 p.m. 
two fourth graders who attended the same school as Susan saw her as they rode their bikes on the Nason's block. The mother of one of Susan's other classmates saw her walking on the other side of the street and called out a greeting. Susan waved and smiled, but when the woman invited her inside for a cold drink, Susan told her no thank you, since she was on an errand and had to go home right afterwards. A neighbor of the Oakleys saw from her window a little girl turning up into the Oakleys' walkway. A few moments later, she saw the girl walk by her house again. She also recalled seeing a blue station wagon with boxes piled in the back drive past around the same time. A man in a yellow shirt was driving the car, she recalled. When 4 o'clock passed and then it grew closer to 4.30, Margaret Nason began to worry. Her daughter should have been back by then. Maybe she had lost track of time playing with Celia. She reasoned with herself to quell her growing anxiety. She decided to call the Oakley house to make sure. Celia's older sister answered and said she didn't know a Susie, but that Celia wasn't home either. That must be it, Margaret told herself. Susie had probably gone outside to play with Celia. She asked the girl to have Celia send Susan home when they returned. When Susan still didn't return, Margaret decided to go and look for her. She got on her bicycle and rode around to places where her daughter would usually go to play, but she didn't find her. She then rode to the Oakley's house. The girls weren't there, Celia's sister said, but she also hopped on her bicycle and Margaret followed her to the places where Celia could usually be located. Still, there was no sign of the girls. They returned to the Oakley's house. Celia had returned while they were out searching, but Susan wasn't with her. When Margaret asked her where Susan was, Celia answered, Susan who? She asked Celia if her classmate had brought her shoes, and Celia then recalled that the little girl had come by about 3.15 and dropped them off, but she left right after. Now a cold chill ran through Margaret Nason. She returned home. Her husband Don had since come home from work, and Margaret told him Susan was missing. They both began searching the neighborhood, knocking on doors and asking anyone they came across if they'd seen little Susie. When there was no sign of her, they returned home and called the police. Foster City, California is located on a peninsula approximately halfway between San Francisco to its north and San Jose to the south. Foster City sits on the San Francisco Bay and is a planned community of cookie-cutter tract homes, parks, and lagoons. In 1958, a wealthy investor named T. Jack Foster purchased a plot of land in San Mateo County to build upon. The city was constructed upon the marshlands using dredged-up sand and shells from the bay. The first homes, costing between twenty dollars and $30,000 each, were built in 1963. By the following year, young middle-class families began purchasing the new homes. By 1969, Foster City was home to almost 12,000 residents. Most families were made up of stay-at-home moms and fathers who worked in the cities of San Mateo, Burlingame, South San Francisco, or further south into Redwood City and Palo Alto. The Nasons had purchased their four-bedroom home on Valclutha Street in 1967. They had two daughters, with the oldest Shirley being a year older than Susan. Like most young families who made Foster City their home, the Nasons did so because they believed it to be a nice place to raise a family. The entire city was policed by just 16 officers, with the police and fire departments combined. 
most crimes reported were minor complaints, perhaps vandalism or a home burglary being the most serious calls received. In 1969, no murders or even robberies had been reported in Foster City. At that time, a call to Foster City Police about a missing child would have been met with the assumption that it was a misunderstanding, just a child who went to play with a friend and failed to return home on time. But on the evening of September 22nd, such a call came in, placed by Don Nason. Don was known to the police as he had had several run-ins with the law due to his excessive drinking. He wasn't known as a violent man, but they had to check to make sure that the girl hadn't met with some trouble at home first. Officers arrived and searched the house and yard, but there was no sign of eight-year-old Susan. They even asked Don if he would come in the following day to be administered a polygraph test. He quickly agreed. While Don continued drinking as police questioned him and Margaret, they didn't think he had harmed his daughter or was lying about not knowing where she was. They put out an all-points bulletin describing Susan as four foot five inches tall, 60 pounds with blue eyes and light brown hair and freckles. She'd last been seen wearing a blueprint dress, white bobby socks, and brown shoes. A search of the area began with officers and volunteers scouring the city's parks, homes, backyards, and playgrounds. By that evening, a real worry began to set in among community members who had been sure that Susan would be found by dinner time. The sun set, and there was still no sign of her. The next morning, over 200 volunteers turned out to continue the search in fields, vacant lots, and areas along the shoreline. Tracking dogs were brought in to try and sniff out Susan's scent to at least get an idea of which way she might have gone. Diving teams from Hamilton Air Force Base searched underwater in lagoons near the Nason's neighborhood. A Coast Guard helicopter searched by air. A $10,000 reward was raised for the safe return of Susan Nason. Later, it was increased to $20,000. Reports came in of Susan sightings around the Bay Area, but none of them panned out. A girl in Susan's class said she had had a run-in the previous Friday with a man in a blue station wagon who'd offered her a ride home. She had seen a gun on the floorboard of the car when he opened the door and also some dolls on the seat. There were also cardboard boxes piled up to the windows in the rear seat. The next week, two girls in Belmont were approached by a man in a blue station wagon, and they wrote down the license plate number. The man, Aaron Patterson, was picked up by police. He matched the description given by Susan's classmate. He was arrested, and his house was searched, but he could not be placed in Foster City on the day Susan went missing, and he passed two polygraph tests. He was released. Susan's parents and the police were fervently hoping that she was being held for ransom and that the kidnappers would soon contact them with their demands. They had nothing else to go on at the moment. So they were elated when someone did call demanding $30,000 to be dropped at a location in San Francisco. Don Nason's employer put up the cash and the drop was made. Police were watching and they converged on the alleged kidnapper and arrested him. After questioning him, they realized he had no information about Susan Nason and was just trying to take advantage of a terrible situation. The Nason's hopes were shattered once again. In order to get through the days of not knowing where their child was, Margaret Nason told herself that Susan had probably been picked up by a couple who wanted a child and were hiding her somewhere, 
but that she was safe and being cared for. It was the only way she could cope, not wanting to imagine something worse. On December 2nd, 10 weeks after Susan Nason went missing, Effie Ray Bottomore, who worked as a keeper patrolling the watershed areas around Crystal Springs Reservoir, was on his usual rounds. He checked the level of the reservoir each morning, drove the back roads to check fences and to check for trespassers. The area was off limits to the public, but occasionally hunters and fishermen tried to sneak on to the 23,000-acre watershed to take advantage of the teeming wildlife to be found there. Crystal Springs Reservoir was located about eight minutes east of Foster City, traveling down California Highway 92. At just after 10 a.m., Bottomore decided to pull into a turnoff on a hill that was located just a short distance before the reservoir. Sightseers would frequently park their cars on the turnoff, as it afforded a wonderful view of the valley below. Cypress trees and shrubs ringed the turnoff area, and a trail led to a small clearing. People would often take the trail down to a secluded spot to smoke or drink and would leave trash and other debris. They didn't realize that the area was thick with poison oak, and they sometimes returned home with a souvenir from their adventure in the form of a quite nasty itchy rash from exposure to its leaves. But being winter, the poison oak wasn't in full bloom, and Bottomore decided to walk a ways down the trail to check out the area. The clearing led to a somewhat steep drop-off, where people would dump any number of items, from beer cans to bags of trash to large household appliances. As he peered down, Bottomore saw a box spring mattress on the side of the hill that he'd noticed before. It wasn't a complete mattress, but a wooden frame with exposed box spring coils. There was brush piled on top of it. He walked closer and looked through the coils and brush. That's when he saw a small skull with a hole in the side. It looked like a child's. He immediately thought of the nascent girl, whose disappearance had been all over the news. He took one more look and saw the rest of the figure, or what was left of it. The clothing looked like a dress, and he now thought that this must be the missing girl. He didn't touch anything, but quickly returned to his car to radio the office to report his gruesome discovery. A sheriff's deputy was sent out to meet Bottomore, who pointed out the body. The deputy confirmed that it was a human, and most likely a young girl. The area was roped off, and crime scene technicians and detectives were sent out to the scene. The body of little Susan Nason was found dumped down a hilly incline off of Half Moon Bay Road. It was determined that she had most likely died just hours after she went missing. She never got to reach her ninth birthday. The body was found underneath a box spring mattress and badly decomposed. It was positioned on its left side, the left leg drawn up underneath her and her right foot outstretched. She had a white bobby sock still on her left foot a multicolored dress, white underwear, and denim shorts worn underneath the dress were on the body. A brown shoe lay nearby. There appeared to be damage to the skull. A large rock was found nearby. The coroner performed the autopsy. There was blood found on the dress, and the main injury was to the right side of the skull, above the ear where there was a large gash measuring two inches by five inches. The coroner determined that blunt force trauma to the head had killed Susan. The large rock nearby could have made the injury and was suspected to be the murder weapon. 
Another significant injury was found to the right hand, specifically the back of the hand and wrist. On the middle finger of the right hand was a small white metal ring with a missing stone that was also smashed and flattened, as was the finger bone. Some of the fingers of the right hand were missing. Whether taken away by animals or the killer was unknown. The coroner hypothesized that the injury to the hand had occurred while the girl was in a defensive position, possibly with her hands raised over her head as the rock was smashed down onto the skull. Susan's dental records were requested, and from them the body was positively identified as belonging to Susan Nason. A piece of her dress and another ring that was still intact on her left hand was taken to Margaret Nason to be identified. She confirmed that they belonged to her daughter. Margaret had made the dress herself. The San Mateo County Sheriff's Department, in conjunction with the Foster City Police, released the information that Susan Nason's body had been found lying at the bottom of a 35-foot embankment under an overturned mattress and that she had died from a skull fracture, possibly caused by a rock found nearby. Newspapers also reported that a ring and a brown shoe with a buckle were found at the crime scene. A video of F.A. Ray Bottomore standing at the top of the hillside and pointing to the area where the body was found was shown on the evening news. Papers later reported the detail about the ring found smashed on her right hand. Susan was buried at Skylon Memorial Park on December 9th. A headstone installed at her gravesite read, So small, so sweet, so soon. Susan K. Nason, 1960-1969, forever in our hearts. Susan was buried without her right hand. At the request of Foster City's Police Lieutenant William Hensel, the coroner had severed the right hand from the body. If her kidnapper was in possession of the fingers, and perhaps decided to send them to the family or police to taunt them, he wanted to have the hand in order to positively match them. The hand was placed in a jar of formaldehyde and kept on a shelf in the evidence room. The murder of Susan Nason remained a cold case for 20 years. Then in November of 1989, Charles Edder, an inspector with the San Mateo County District Attorney's Office, received a phone call. The man who called would identify himself only by his first name, Barry. He said that his wife just told him that she had witnessed a murder 20 years ago. He refused to give any details at first, only saying that his wife identified the victim as her best friend, and that she could identify the murderer. He did not want to give the inspector any more details over the phone. He explained that his wife was afraid the killer would find out she had identified him and her life would be in danger. Over the next two days, Barry and then his wife, who wouldn't identify herself, called the DA's office no less than six times. They wanted assurances that the killer would not be contacted unless the police were sure they could arrest him and charge him with the murder. In one of the phone calls, Mrs. Barry said the killer was a family member. Edder continued to try and get the woman to give more details by assuring her that they wouldn't even pursue the case unless they had enough evidence to corroborate her story. He told her he'd need the name of the victim as well as details he could use to verify her account. She finally agreed and then revealed that the murder she had allegedly witnessed was that of Susan Nason in Foster City in 1969. While Edder taped the phone call, Mrs. Barry told him the following story. 
She had been riding in the car with the man who'd killed Susan Nason. They had picked her up across the street from her house that day. He drove her and Susan to a wooded area on the road to Half Moon Bay, and she'd witnessed him rape Susan in the back of the car. Next thing she recalled, they were all outside of the car. She remembered seeing Susan sitting a few feet away from where she herself was standing by the car. She thought Susan was sitting on a small hill or maybe a rock because she was slightly elevated from the ground. She then witnessed the man hit Susan on the head with a rock. She'd seen Susan bring her hand up over her head before the man hit her a second time. Mrs. Berry said that she saw the blood and also that a ring on Susan's hand had been crushed by the rock. The man then made her help him put something over Susan. She recalled it being a mattress. She remembered screaming and the man pushing her to the ground. He told her to tell no one or he'd kill her. He also threatened that she'd be blamed as well for taking part in Susan's murder. The last question the detective asked Mrs. Berry was how old she was at the time this occurred. She said that she had been eight years old. Edder contacted the deputy district attorney, Martin Murray, in San Mateo, and Bob Morse in the sheriff's office to get more details about the case. Bob Morse and another detective, Brian Cassandro, pulled out the file on the 20-year-old case. They were surprised to find that several details of the caller's story matched the evidence. Susan Nason had been found in a wooded area off a road to Half Moon Bay. Her skull had been crushed by what the coroner believed was a rock, and her hand had been smashed along with the ring she was wearing. Finally, her body had been found hidden under a mattress. Morse checked the coroner's file to see if the woman could have pieced together her story from media stories that came out about the case. But the articles found in the coroner's file made no mention of the mattress, the injury to Susan's hand, or the smashed ring. He now believed the woman to be telling the truth. On the next call with the woman, he told her he believed her account and that they'd found it had matched the evidence on file. He asked her for her name. Eileen, she responded. Eileen Franklin Lipsker. She agreed to give him the name of the man she saw commit the murder, but only if he promised not to contact him unless he thought he could arrest him. He told her he would never make an arrest unless he had a solid case, so she agreed to tell him. But instead, she passed the phone to her husband to do so. Barry Lipsker told the detective, His name is George Franklin. It's her father. George Thomas Franklin was born in 1939 in Virginia. He was named after his grandfather, a hard-drinking, controlling man who ran his home with an iron fist and used violence and intimidation against his wife and children who were terrified of him. He was a successful farm owner who amassed a fortune in land around Bassett, Virginia. As a result, the Franklins became one of the wealthiest families in Virginia. George and his wife, Maybell, had nine children. One son, Onus Cyril Franklin, was the black sheep of the family. He was lazy, mean, and selfish. He was also a heavy drinker like his father. In fact, the only work he did steadily was producing moonshine. Onus married Hattie Jarrett when he was 26, and she was 17, and they began a family. George Thomas, named after his grandfather, was the last born and the only boy. He was his mother's favorite and was doted upon by his older sisters, too. Onus ignored his children except when he was beating them. They learned to stay out of his way, or else they might find themselves at the end of his belt 
or his fists. George took to keeping a baseball bat in his room for protection against his father. Hattie and Onus had been given a house and land by Onus's father. Onus never worked enough to provide financially for his family, and Hattie only kept food on the table because she sold off pieces of their land to meet the family's expenses. Maybell also slipped Hattie money when times grew tough, and even warned her about her own son, telling Hattie not to leave her girls alone with their father. The Franklin family tradition of making excuses for their son's bad behavior and turning a blind eye to violence and even sexual abuse had been firmly established. George mostly stayed out of his father's way and spent the majority of his time with his mother and sisters. Neighbors and teachers said he was a happy little boy, always laughing and smiling. He was charming with his red hair and big smile, and Hattie loved to show off her son. She dressed him up and took him to church. He sometimes got angry or jealous of his sisters and would hit them, but he wasn't scolded. Instead, his mother and sisters tried to placate him by giving him what he wanted. All of George's life, he'd seemed to be a man of contradictions. He was friendly, charming, and happy-go-lucky. People, especially other men, saw him as a good guy. But other times, he could come across as a bully, an arrogant jerk, and basically a total asshole. It just depended on which George you happened to get that particular day. Soon after her mother-in-law, Maybell, died, Hattie left her husband, Onus. Maybell had left her enough money to take care of the children, providing for at least one of them to attend college. Onus was furious that he hadn't been left any money, and Hattie thought it best to leave the state. Hattie and her two girls, who were still minors, moved to Florida. George was sent to San Bruno, California, to live with his sister, Isis, and her husband. There he would finish high school and perhaps continue on to a military academy. George's favorite subject was military history. He was tall and solidly built, but not particularly athletic. Soon after arriving in San Bruno, George met Leah DiBernardi, a 17-year-old from a Catholic family who attended Mercy High School. Leah was quiet, studious, and not very popular. She loved to read and often had her head buried in a book. She'd had a few dates, but her parents were strict Roman Catholics who didn't believe in casual dating. Leah's parents were not only strict, but also somewhat cruel to their oldest daughter. Leah's mother seemed to encourage rivalry between Leah and her younger, more attractive and popular sisters. Leah grew up hating her sisters and resenting her parents. Since she wasn't invited to dances or football games, Leah spent her time studying. She became one of the top students in her class and was well on track to attend college, something her parents encouraged. In her senior year of high school, Leah met George Franklin, who was working after school as a bagger at the grocery store near her home. Soon after she began seeing him, she told her parents that instead of attending college on the scholarship she'd earned, she was planning to marry George right after graduation. Her parents were disappointed, but Leah's mind was made up, so they congratulated the couple and threw them an engagement party. But a few months later, Leah announced she was pregnant. To become pregnant out of wedlock was seen as a major sin by her parents and not something good Catholic girls did in their eyes. They moved up the wedding date and George was made to convert so the couple could be married in the Catholic Church. Right after the wedding, George made it clear that he had no use for the church or Leah's family. He acted cold and arrogantly towards his wife's family. The DiBernardis also noticed with alarm that Leah submitted to whatever George wanted. 
George had a chip on his shoulder whenever he felt anyone thought themselves better than him. He decided his in-laws were in this category, and it's probably true that they didn't think George was worthy of their daughter. Leah came from an educated family with deep roots in the San Francisco Bay Area and were respected in their community. George was an 18-year-old boy who hadn't yet completed high school, worked as a grocery store bagger, and had little family support. His mother lived across the country, and his father was a no-account. In fact, years later, Onis Franklin would die drunk and penniless, living in a trailer on a plot of land belonging to his family. But George also internalized his own feelings of inferiority. He knew the story of how his grandfather had become a wealthy landowner on his own hard work and ingenuity. He resented his own father for squandering the family's inheritance, causing his own children to scrape by financially. He often told people about his wealthy grandfather from Virginia and was also determined to make his own fortune. But in 1958, George was still working part-time and attending high school when his wife gave birth to their first child, Kathleen Victoria, who would be called Kate. A few months later, George joined the Marine Corps Reserves. He served as a rifleman and a radio operator and would eventually be promoted to corporal. He served in the military for seven years. George took night classes and eventually received his high school diploma in 1961. In March of the same year, he tested in to become a firefighter with the San Mateo Fire Department. There is before, George exhibited two personalities. Sometimes he would be a happy-go-lucky good old boy who loved to spin tales for his fellow firefighters in his homey Virginia drawl. He could be fun and easygoing. But other times, which became more frequent as the years went on, George could be arrogant and would lash out in anger at any perceived slight. Sometimes he was just plain mean, berating the other men in public, cussing them and calling them morons and worse. His mood worsened further when he began to drink, and his drinking increased over time. Like his father and grandfather before him, George was a mean drunk. He had a foul mouth and an even fouler temper, with no qualms about belittling and mocking others, even his superiors at work. But he was also smart and hardworking. Like most firefighters, George's schedule was three days on and four days off. For 72 hours, he lived at the fire station while on call. The other four days, he could go home or even work another job. George began a house painting business, and as soon as he was off duty, he would run to a job and paint for 8 to 12 hours. One other thing about George that his co-workers were well aware of was his obsession with sex. He was constantly on the make, and seemed to have no specific type of woman he desired to sleep with. Every woman was a possible conquest in George's eyes. He had bedded many women and never seemed to get enough sex. He spoke of women in the act of sex in an extremely crude way. After he'd been with a woman, he'd call her insulting and degrading names when relaying these stories to the other firefighters. He was not a lover of women, but seemed instead to feel hostile towards them, using them for sex and then calling them sluts or worse. He never hid these indiscretions from his wife, either. He'd bragged to her about the women he cheated on her with and seemed to enjoy her hurt and angry reaction. As bad as George Franklin could be, his co-workers were sure of two things. He'd never shown any sexual interest in children, or even very young girls, and they'd never seen him raise a fist in anger. George used his words as a weapon, but never struck out violently against anyone, at least that they had ever witnessed.
Unfortunately for Leah, she had witnessed George's violent outbursts and had become a frequent target for them. About five years into their marriage, George began to hit her. They had five children in quick succession. With each child, Leah seemed to grow more overwhelmed and retreated further into a shell. Kate was born in 1958, Janice in 1959, Eileen in 1960, George Jr. in 1962, and Diana in 1963. Leah would sometimes bring the children with her to visit George when he was on shift at the fire station. She was quiet and seemed tired and frumpy in oversized shapeless dresses, her hair uncombed and frizzy. The children seemed somewhat unkempt as well. George spoke insultingly of his wife, calling her that, quote, Catholic Dago slut, unquote, to his co-workers. He talked down to her, calling her a dumb broad in front of neighbors and friends. He also seemed to dislike his children, calling them ungrateful brats. When George became angry, he didn't hesitate to hit Leah in the head or face with an open hand or the back of his fist. Sometimes she'd just be sitting in a chair reading, something she began to do more and more as her only escape from the misery of her marriage. When he'd pass by and for no apparent reason, his fist would shoot out and connect with her head, sometimes knocking her to the floor. Then he'd simply continue on his way through the room. The children never knew which father they would experience that day. Sometimes he would be generous and loving towards them, bringing them special treats or gifts or whipping up a batch of cinnamon rolls that were hot and ready for them when they came down to the breakfast table. On his days off, he might take them swimming or camping or even for an impromptu trip to Disneyland. But other days, especially when he was sitting and brooding in his chair, knocking back bourbon and Cokes, any little thing might set him off. Maybe the television set was too loud or he heard a couple of the children bickering in another room. Sometimes they had no idea what they did wrong before their father would come after them. He'd make them stand in front of him, sometimes pulling down their pants, and would begin whipping the back of their legs with his thick leather belt. Sometimes it would be a hard slap across the face that left their lips cut and bleeding. They learned to try and stay invisible to their father, lest they be singled out for his wrath. In some situations, like at the dinner table, there was nowhere to hide. They would try to make as little noise as possible and made sure to use table manners, as this could set George off too. But inevitably, he would single out one of the children and begin questioning them. What did you learn in school today? He might ask one of them. They knew to be ready with an answer. Any hesitation or a bullshit answer might cause him to blow up in anger. The cleverest children would share something they remembered from a history lesson, their father's favorite subject but God forbid they should get something wrong, because then they would get yelled at, called an idiot, and sometimes hit with a belt as well. Leah, also afraid of her husband's anger and violence, mostly kept silent while her children were being abused. Sometimes, when he was administering a particularly vicious beating or going on too long, she might say, George, that's enough. He would respond by screaming at her not to interfere while he was disciplining his children. Leah seemed to enjoy her children early on, especially her daughters, but nevertheless began to leave them more and more to their own devices. She withdrew into herself, sipping wine all day and reading. She gained an excessive amount of weight and stopped caring about her appearance. She slipped further into depression as the years wore on. She'd also vent her anger at her children by repeatedly telling them that having them had ruined her life. Each of the children responded differently to their father's violence and their mother's emotional absence. Kate, the oldest, became invisible. 
she would remain silent and retreat into her room to avoid the chaos and violence that came with living in the Franklin home. Later, as she became a teen, she would stay out of the house as much as possible. When she was home, she did her best not to make any waves or call attention to herself. Janice reacted to the violence with anger. When she was the target of her father's abuse, she refused to cry. She would endure it without making a sound and internalize her anger. To lash out at him only provoked a worse beating. Instead, she focused her anger on her mother. Not only did her mother do nothing to protect her children from their brutal father, sometimes she seemed to deflect her husband's anger away from herself and towards her children. She would tell George what one child or another had done wrong that day, not finishing their chores, arguing with their siblings, etc., thus providing him with a convenient target for his rage. Janice argued constantly with her mother, criticizing her for her laziness and neglect of the house, her children, and herself. The argument sometimes became so heated that Leah would also lash out physically at her child, hitting her with objects like her hairbrush. Janice got a reputation in school as a tough girl you didn't want to mess with. George Jr. tried his best to please his father, but he was only treated with contempt. His father would belittle him, calling him names like P-Brain, mocking him for being a bedwetter. He was an awkward child and never fit in, even in his own home as the only boy. He was often the odd man out, and he knew it. So he tried harder to live up to whatever expectations his father had, but it was no use. George Sr. saw his son as a mere irritant at best. He often directed his anger at his son, who never tried to defend himself, and unlike his sisters, would cry and scream while receiving the kicks and punches doled out by his father. This only made George Sr. angrier, resulting in an even worse beating. By the time the youngest, Diana, was born, family violence was firmly entrenched in the Franklin home. Perhaps because of this, she seemed affected when still very young. She was extremely quiet and withdrawn, did poorly in school, and had few friends. As the youngest, she didn't receive as many beatings as her siblings, but witnessing them constantly caused her ongoing terror. She became very close to her older sister Eileen, who she shared a room with. Eileen took care of Diana, helping her get ready for school, taking her along when she went to visit friends, and generally just looking out for her. Eileen was Diana's hero. Eileen was also her father's favorite. One reason for this might have been because she resembled him, with her blondish red hair and dark eyes. He also probably liked the fact that Eileen adored him. She thought her father was smart and handsome, and she was proud to be his daughter. As a little girl, she followed him around like a puppy dog, and he took her with him on special outings, like out for ice cream or out to eat at a diner, just the two of them. He even had a special nickname for her, Pooh. Eileen, like her siblings, also suffered from her father's angry outbursts, but not as frequently. Her sister Kate would later say that another reason she may have been her father's favorite was that she also enjoyed creating chaos and drama in the home. According to Kate, Eileen could be dangerous because she liked to rat out her siblings to her father, bringing up things about them that she knew would make her father angry. He would then strike out at whoever Eileen tattled on. She seemed to relish being at the center of the storm and holding power over the others. While Eileen might have been the favorite at home, she wasn't popular among her peers. She was made fun of for her looks. Her red hair, face full of freckles and buck teeth, made her a target of teasing at school. She also liked to draw attention to herself by overacting. 
Once she fell on the playground and scraped her knee, but screamed and yelled for minutes as if she'd broken a limb. Most of the kids avoided her dramatics. Eileen did have a couple of good friends, two other girls who had been cast aside by their classmates. One of the friends was a girl who possessed a physical disability. The other was Susan Nason, who was teased because of her red hair and freckles. Eileen became best friends with Susan, and they paired up at lunch, recess, and after school. While the other Franklin children didn't often invite friends over when their dad was home, Eileen couldn't wait to show off her father to her friend. George would play with the two girls, sometimes sitting them both on his lap as they played a game of tickle. George Franklin's goal had always been to acquire property and become wealthy, like his grandfather had done. His income from his firefighter job paid the bills, and his side job as a house painter gave him the money he needed to invest in property. By 1971, he was even able to have a larger home built for his family on Beach Park Boulevard, which afforded them a view of San Francisco Bay. He also purchased homes that he would then put to use as rental properties. But life at home didn't improve. In 1967, Leah Franklin was hospitalized for a nervous breakdown and received electroshock therapy. She was away from the family receiving treatment for several months. She was admitted once more in 1968 and was prescribed a powerful antidepressant, which she took for years afterwards. As the Franklin children entered their teenage years, they began to act out. Janice was the most social and outgoing and began hanging out with a bad crowd of kids. She began skipping school, smoking, taking drugs, and drinking. She and her girlfriends earned a reputation as sexually promiscuous. Janice and her mother still battled, and the arguments became more vicious, with Janice freely hurling expletives at Leah. Eileen still had trouble fitting in and capitalized on her outcast status at school. By junior high, she walked around with a chip on her shoulder, ignoring anyone's attempts to be friendly. When she began attending San Mateo High School, she was almost invisible. No one really knew her or even noticed her. It was at this time that she began to behave oddly, yelling, Jesus loves you, in another student's face, using crude language, and making off-the-wall statements. Most of her classmates just thought she was weird if they thought of her at all. I kind of picture her as Ellie Sheedy's character in The Breakfast Club. By her sophomore year, Eileen had found one way to fit in with a certain group. That was by using drugs. She started smoking pot and quickly moved on to other substances, various pills, uppers and downers, and also acid. As Eileen had done in grade school, she also found a small group of friends who also didn't fit in with the high school scene. The girls were awkward and antisocial, and the two or three boys in the group were gay, and because of this had been cast out by the majority of their high school classmates. Eileen understood how it felt not to be accepted, and to her great credit, she was accepting of all, inviting them into the group. Eileen had also introduced her little sister Diana to drugs. When she was 12, Eileen gave her acid. Diana still looked up to her sister and was thrilled when Eileen invited her along to hang out with her. But most of the time now, it was to get high. Diana had grown into an attractive girl with dark auburn hair and a trim figure. Playing up her looks with makeup and cute clothes, she began to skip school to meet up with guys and party. She didn't date high school boys, but always older men. A good portion of her high school years were spent stoned. She missed so many classes that she didn't have enough credits to graduate and ended up dropping out, not receiving a high school diploma at all. 
Kate, the one who tried to stay away from the family drama as much as possible, seemed to have the most normal teenage years outside of her home. She went to school, made a small but close-knit group of friends, joined the drama club, went to dances and concerts, and worked part-time. She saved up her money in hopes of moving out on her own as soon as she was old enough. She was so eager to do so, she even took extra classes and was able to graduate high school six months early. George Jr. was still an odd duck in high school. He wore his oddness as a badge of honor and played up his goofy character. He made off-the-wall humorous jokes as a way to shield himself from the teasing and shunning he received by his classmates. He made himself the butt of his own jokes as a way to fight back. At his graduation ceremony, when he was handed his diploma, he kissed the superintendent on the cheek as he shook his hand. In embracing his weirdness, George Jr. found a way to make his mark. Eileen continued to be close to her father, perhaps even closer than she'd been as a little girl. And she continued to enjoy stirring up drama in the family by telling her family whenever her siblings did something wrong. Now that the Franklin family was doing well financially, Eileen began telling her friends that she intended to marry a rich man. Someday, she said, she would live in a mansion, drive an expensive car, and have everything she wanted. Money seemed to be the most important thing to Eileen. She talked about it constantly. She certainly wasn't focused on school or having a career. In fact, Eileen also didn't finish high school, dropping out before she'd completed her credits to graduate. This would always be a sore spot for her, and something she would blame her mother for. She'd say that she missed so many days of school because she didn't have any decent clothes, causing her to be too embarrassed to attend. In 1974, Leah finally told her husband she wanted a divorce. By that time, George was away from home several days at a time. The Franklin children would later say that they don't believe their mother had kicked their father out because of all the abuse they'd suffered, but only after he'd beaten her up. He left the date after she told him she wanted to end the marriage. George was the one who filed for divorce just a few months later. He did not ask for custody of any of his children, who were at that time between the ages of 14 and 17. By this time, the Franklins owned five rental properties plus their own home. In the divorce agreement, Leah was awarded the family's home, as well as one of the rental properties, and $450 a month in child support. After 17 years of marriage, Leah was single again. But it was George who began a new relationship right away. He moved his 20-year-old girlfriend and her two children into a duplex he purchased. George's children, including Kate, continued to spend time with their dad. He was no longer abusive to them, and they liked his new girlfriend, too. Janice even moved in with her father and his girlfriend for a year while she completed school. Diana traveled with him to a real estate convention. George Jr. worked for his father later on, managing an apartment complex he had purchased. And Eileen took several trips with her father, including a vacation with him to Mexico to celebrate her 19th birthday. She also joined him in a cross-country trip in his van to visit his mother and sisters. Eileen was even employed at her father's real estate business for a time. She was still her father's favorite and was the one child who spent the most time with him, kept in touch with him through the years, and continued a close relationship. So it was very unexpected when, in 1989, she called the district attorney's office to report her father for the murder of her friend, 8-year-old Susan Nason, 20 years earlier. That will do it for part one of this story. If you're a Patreon supporter, part two will be available tomorrow. If you're not a Patreon supporter, 
but would like to become one to get early release episodes, bonus content, and Once Upon a Crime swag when you join, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. For everyone else, part two will be available next Monday, March 18th. The second half of the story will include some twists and turns you won't believe. I can't wait to share it with you. I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for listening and telling a friend about this podcast. I know you have many podcasts to choose from, and the fact that you take the time to listen to my true crime stories every week is truly, truly appreciated. Thank you for spending your valuable time with me. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. We have an updated website, including some Once Upon a Crime merchandise. To check it out, go to truecrimepodcast.com. Thanks, Lorena, for all your hard work in getting our website going. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.